my brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon Meowsers, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And we are picking up right where we left off, Chapter 7. Return to Camp Humphreys, Forced Marches. Troops regain their old camps. Expiration of term of service of nine months regiments. 155th and 91st Pennsylvania Volunteers assigned to 3rd Brigade Sykes 2nd Division, 5th Army Corps. Camp Humphreys abandoned. Colonel E.J. Allen returns to regiment. Army of Potomac breaks camp and marches in direction of Washington City. Passes over battlefields of previous year. Depressing sights and scenes. Great fatigue of troops. Fifth Corps remains weak near Aldi, Loudoun County, Virginia, in support of cavalry protecting wagon trains. Fifth Corps resumes forced marching. Physical exhaustion of men. Hanging of... Spy Richardson. General Meade succeeds General Hooker in command of the Army of Potomac. General George Sykes commands 5th Army Corps. General Ayers succeeds to command of Sykes Division. General Weed commands 3rd Brigade. Sykes Division on Pennsylvania soil. Renewed martial spirit awakened in troops. Sunstroke and blistered feet. Cavalry engagement near Hanover, Pennsylvania. Forced march of regiment until midnight of July 1st. Sounds of heavy cannonading. On May 6, 1863, Humphrey's division took up its line of return march, which occupied all day over muddy roads and in rainy, foggy weather, back to Camp Humphreys, the point which they had started for Chancellorsville with such bright hopes and expectations of victory one short week before. The Union army was not demoralized, although somewhat disappointed, as but a fraction of it had been engaged. In regaining their old camps, the entertainments, drills, picket and guard duties, and also the amusements which had marked the camp all the previous winter, were soon resumed. The relations existing between the 155th and the 123rd Pennsylvania Regiment on the marches to Antietam and to Falmouth, and in the division camps at Falmouth and also in Camp Humphreys, were most friendly and intimate. The companies of the regiments, being mostly from Allegheny County, had strong ties of friendship as schoolmates and neighbors before enlisting. Colonel Clark, commander of the 123rd, was a brave soldier who received from the dashing General Humphreys, the division commander, the great compliment on the battlefield of Fredericksburg, where the division participated 
in the bloody charge on Mary's Heights that, quote, after all, the preacher colonel would fight, unquote. The earnest and intense language used by the division general in compliment to Reverend Colonel Clark was emphasized with profanity, which the Reverend Colonel, under other circumstances, would undoubtedly have reproved. Humphrey's division disbanded, and regiments depart for home. The 134th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, Colonel Edward O'Brien commanding, a native Pittsburgher and a veteran of the Mexican War, was from Beaver and Lawrence counties, and had many warm friends, schoolmates and old neighbors, and the 155th. Both the 123rd and the 134th Pennsylvania regiments lost, as shown by the official reports, due to their exposed position, almost twice the number killed and wounded, as the casualty returns show that any other regiment sustained in that dreadful action. These regiments, with an excellent record of officers and men, had enlisted for the term of nine months, which was to expire on May 9th. It was a source of sadness to some of the homesick comrades of the 155th, who had enlisted for three years' service, to hear in Camp Humphreys each sunset, for thirty days before the term of the 123rd and other nine months' troops expired, their demonstrative cheering that another day had expired, and that home and friends were accordingly so much nearer to their view. On May 8th, an equally solemn duty was assigned to those of the 155th Regiment who were homesick, namely, to escort Colonel Clark's regiment of Humphrey's division to the railroad station on their way home. Homesickness was much aggravated by the circulation of reports invented by the active minds of the Ananias' clubs, which abounded in every regiment in camp. It was gravely asserted that an egregious blunder had been made by the War Department in mustering the 155th Regiment into the United States service as a three years instead of a nine months term regiment. These voracious reporters asserted that the entire cabinet of the President were excited over the startling discovery and that there is no possible way out of this dilemma except promptly to discharge the regiment as a nine months organization. In consequence of these persistent reports, therefore, continuing until almost the night before the nine months' regiments were to depart from Camp Humphreys, the boys of the 155th cherished the delusion of accompanying the other Pittsburgh regiments that had enlisted for nine months and being mustered out with them in Pittsburgh. The wish being father to this thought among the 155th, it may be well understood that sorrow and sadness prevailed after their feelings had been so wrought up. When they were ordered to fall into line with their bands to escort the nine months' regiments from Camp Humphreys to Stoneman Station, there to entrain via Washington from Pittsburgh, the disappointment to friends and sweethearts at home to whom these members of the 155th had given the most positive assurances that the regiment would be discharged as a nine months' regiment must have also been harrowing. A poem. The Man with the Musket. I knew him, by all that is noble I knew, this commonplace hero I name. I've camped with him, marched with him, fought with him too, in the swirl of the fierce battle flame. Laughed with him, cried with him, 
taken a part of his canteen and blanket and known that the throb of this chivalrous prairie boy's heart was an answering stroke of my own. A practical joke was played on General Humphreys, the division commander, by some mischievous devils of the nine months troops, who, the night before the disbandment of the division and their homeward march, gathered up all their cartridges, and with the powder from the same, laid a mine leading to General Humphreys' tent. This they ignited by a slow match, thus giving them time to escape before its explosion. The detonation caused a great excitement and a scattering of tin cans and bottles in the vicinity of the distinguished general's headquarters. The irascible general, thus aroused from his slumbers, called the provost guard and made an awful commotion in the camp, almost as much so as if the enemy had broken through. It was generally supposed that if the general had possessed power, instead of deploying the peaceful 155th to a three-year's regiment to escort the nine-months troops to the station the next morning, he would have enjoyed assigning that regiment to the duty of shooting a couple of battalions of the nine-months regiments of his late command for their terrible act of insubordination and violation of the rules and regulations and articles of war so dear to one so rigid in the enforcement of the same as was the general of the division being thus disbanded. On the morning of the 8th of May, the whole of Alibach's brigade was drawn up in line in Camp Humphreys to bid farewell to the nine months' regiments on their departure. Cheers were given and farewells were spoken. The 155th was detailed to escort them to the station, and this incident is also perpetrated in this history by a sketch made at the time by the regimental artist. The disbandment of Humphreys' division left General Humphreys without a command, and he was soon assigned to the command of a division in the Third Corps under General Sickles, and at Gettysburg won great renown in the engagement in the Peach Orchard. He was promoted by General Meade before leaving the battlefield of Gettysburg to the position of Chief of Staff of the Army of the Potomac. This position he filled with great ability under Meade and Grant until the fall of 1864, when he was promoted to the command of the Second Corps. Regiment transferred to Sykes Division. The 155th and the 91st Pennsylvania Volunteers, the remaining regiments of Humphreys Division, were assigned to the 3rd Brigade of General Sykes' 2nd Division of the 5th Army Corps. Colonel Patrick H. O'Rourke of the 140th New York was in command of this brigade. The other two brigades of Sykes' Division were United States regulars, for whom, and their fighting qualities, the 155th soon learned to have the highest regard and admiration. On the departure of nine months' troops, Camp Humphreys, with its memories and associations, were abandoned, and the 155th and 91st Pennsylvania became residents of Camp Sykes, near United States Ford on the Rappahannock, spending several weeks in it, on June 3, 1863, this camp was broken up and the regiment marched to the United States Ford, where it settled down to an idle camp life again. There was no drilling or roll calls or any routine of that kind in this camp, owing to the close proximity of the regiment to the enemy immediately opposite of the Rappahannock. Conversation with the enemy, exchanges of newspapers and tobacco, floating of little paper boats across the stream, 
and many other civilities were daily exchanged with Confederates during the stay at this point. The particular detail of Confederates thus so courteous and considerate to the Union troops belonged to Philip's legion of General Jeb Stuart's cavalry, who were principally Virginians. On Friday, June 5th, firing was heard in the direction of Fredericksburg, and on the 6th, further firing was heard. Apparently, Hooker was testing, or to use a military phrase, feeling the enemy. In this camp at United States Ford, Colonel E.J. Allen returned from sick leave to the regiment, having been detained at his home in Pittsburgh for some months by severe sickness. The officers and men of the regiment, however, were delighted to welcome the popular colonel, and many called at his tent to pay their respects. Major A.L. Pearson also returned at the same time from a brief leave of absence. Colonel Allen brought reports in circulation in Washington that the Union Army was about to resume operations across the Rappahannock. Colonel Allen's appearance, on returning, indicated that he was still far from having recovered. The six weeks' confinement to bed and his room at home was undoubtedly compulsory and benefited him, so that on the first sign of sufficient convalescence, he determined to disobey his physician's orders and disregard his family's protests against his return to the regiment. The possibility of an invasion of Pennsylvania by the Confederates determined him to join the regiment at once wherever located, but his condition of health on reaching camp was not sufficiently improved to permit his relieving Lieutenant Colonel Kane in command of the regiment. Colonel Allen, however, hoping to further improve under care of the regimental surgeons, continued with the regiment in camp and on the forced marches following. Marching Orders Lieutenant Colonel John H. Kane, in command of the regiment, had read the marching orders at dress parade on Sunday, June 7, 1863. The regiment was kept on the anxious bench as to the time of moving until Saturday, June 13th, in the meantime, continuing the picket duty on the Rappahannock. On this date, while the regiment was being inspected, orders were received to move at 8 o'clock that night and requiring the men to pack up right away and be ready to move. The camp was accordingly broken at that hour in the midst of a heavy thunderstorm, the vivid lightning brightly illuminating the darkness of the roads over which this remarkable forced night march was being made. At midnight, the column reached Hartwood Church, a well-known point where the troops bivouacked. Sunday, June 14, 1863, as early as five o'clock in the morning, the march was resumed in the direction of Washington City, and instead of mud causing annoyance this day, the roads were dusty and the heat occasioned much suffering. Continuously marching till night brought Sykes' division, in which the regiment was serving, a distance of 20 miles, near to Catlett Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, still on the march towards Washington. The heat was so great and the sun so strong that on this day's forced march, ambulances following the troops were frequently filled with the sufferers from sunstroke and exhaustion from heat, many dropping from the ranks. June 15, 1863, marched early from Centerville, the vicinity of the first and second battlefields of Bull Run, covering 20 miles in the march. It was a most fatiguing march, owing to the great heat, causing the prostration of many in the ranks. On this march, 
the regiment passed Bristow Station, celebrated as the point where Generals Hooker and Kearney had engaged the enemy one year previous. During this day's march, many graves of soldiers of the Union Army who had fallen in action the preceding year were visible. Many of the graves were unmarked and all seemed neglected, the weather and rains having frequently washed away the mounds, leaving the bleached bones of the slain exposed, certainly not a cheerful or encouraging sight to behold. The column crossed Kettle Run, continuing along the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, passing by Manassas Junction, and joining the remainder of the Fifth Corps in camp on the plains of Manassas, the identical Bull Run Battlefield of 1861. Through the intense and debilitating heat of this day, the regent marched 20 miles. Many more of the men in the marching column being prostrated were obliged to be placed in the ambulances. An engagement was deemed highly probable at this halt, and General Griffin, commanding the 1st Division in the advance, placed artillery in position to protect the point occupied by the 5th Corps, and Griffin's entire division was formed in line of battle. Tuesday, June 16th, found the entire troops of the 5th Corps halted and resting at Manassas. More graves, this time of Confederate soldiers killed in the first battle of Bull Run, could be seen here. Only one headstone could be seen, and the inscription upon it was, Here lies the remains of George W. Scoville, Private, 52nd Georgia Volunteers, aged 21 years, who died for his country July 21, 1861. The ground where these Confederates were buried seemed well tramped over and neglected, and the place was well supplied with the remains of old Confederate forts, which had been constructed during the first year of the war. Wednesday, June 17th, Reveille sounded early in the morning and marching was resumed by the regiment at daylight. The weather had become cooler, although the roads marched over were still very dusty. The column marched through the village of Centerville at six o'clock, having passed the famous stream of Bull Run a few miles back. This village appeared to be a well-fortified place, the surrounding fortifications obscuring the village. After an hour's halt at Centerville, Brisk marching was resumed for the remainder of the day. Many of the boys of the command were so fatigued and broken down by the continuous and rapid marching and their eagerness to keep up with their companies that teamsters and wagoneers often came to the relief and favored them by permitting them to throw their knapsacks and guns into the wagons, which they could again get at the end of the day's march in the park of the wagon trains. During the march this day, the regiment also passed near Chantilly, made famous as the site where the previous September, General Phil Kearney, serving in Pope's army, lost his life while reconnoitering in advance of his command. The column camped this night near Goose Creek, four miles from Aldi, Loudoun County, Virginia, and remained there until June 26th, about a week. The entire Fifth Corps remained encamped at this point, as a support to Pleasanton's cavalry, which was protecting the large wagon trains of the Army of the Potomac from the raids of the enemy. The cavalry had very severe fighting at Aldi and also at Upperville, and Sykes' division of infantry was called upon several times, and the regiment was drawn up in line of battle, but the cavalry under General Pleasanton was so well handled as to not need the active assistance of the infantry. 
The picketing in the camp was most enjoyable, as the regiment was located on the Katakin Mountains and had lookout points and signal stations communicating with all portions of the army. Every day of the sojourn in this camp, there were more or less fighting, confined, however, wholly to the cavalry and artillery because of the fact that it was Stuart's cavalry which was harassing and annoying the immense army trains accompanying the Army of the Potomac. General S. H. Weed assumes command of the brigade. Brigadier General Stephen H. Weed, lately appointed commander of the brigade in which the 155th Regiment was serving, arrived in this camp and relieved Colonel P. H. O'Rourke, who up to this time was acting brigadier in command of the brigade. This camp was but ten miles from Leesburg, the county seat of Loudoun County. The picket guards in this camp were located in pleasant places. The cherries were plentiful and just ripe, and the farmers in the neighborhood were kind and obliging, although they acknowledged themselves success. Being treated well and protected by the regiment on picket, they reciprocated every way possible the courteous treatment accorded them by the pickets. On one occasion, General Pleasanton rode by the place where the 155th was stationed with angered brow and stopped the retreating cavalry, ordering them to about face. The 155th Pennsylvania and the 146th New York stood ready to support this retreating cavalry, but under General Pleasanton's leadership, the cavalry so rallied as to make the line of battle of infantry to do nothing but await the orders to advance, which never came. During the brief ten days' sojourn in this camp, streets were laid out in regular style, and the comforts of camp tents, etc., enjoyed. Spare time was devoted to drilling and short summer excursions, and, barring the recollection of a most awful waterspout and rain which deluged the camp, the memories of the life in this bivouac were all of the most pleasant character. Forced Marches to Gettysburg and we're going to go ahead and pick that up next week because it's going to start off the Battle of Gettysburg. Obviously plays a huge important part of the history of the 155th. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about a couple of things and some notes that I took for the show. I think this section of the history does well in describing the lull in between the fighting, as well as kind of the dull aspect of what it means to be a soldier spend a lot of time marching around. They spend a lot of time marching around. And the first thing that stood out to me, I mean, there's a lot of things, but I can't cover all of them because I don't have the time. Quote, after all, the preacher colonel would fight, unquote. And that was a quote that's attributed in this history to General Humphreys after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Well, that colonel is John Barr Clark. And it turns out we have like a little history of him. And so I'm going to put that down on my website. And yeah, I guess I'll do the show notes too. So you can click on it and uh, read a little bit about this preacher colonel who did fight. And in another experience, I got to have the same emotions elicited by that of the 155th Regiment when some of them thought they were going home early. And upon graduation at the School of Infantry West... We were all herded to await our buses that would take us to our next destination. And they were, you're going here, so you're going to go stand over there, and you're going here, 
and you're going to go stand over there. And they were telling us what our duty station was going to be. And so there was a small group of guys that had gone with us through boot camp, through the school of infantry. We all knew each other. We hung out to We hung out together. These guys, you know, had been almost nine months and they were flying home because they were reservists. So they were getting to go home. So as they were getting on their bus to go to the airport and fly home to their families, I got to go get hazed down the street on the same day they went home and I got hazed. And I thought about that single decision for years to come. So I know exactly what it's like to watch people to become close friends and shared suffering with somebody. And then they're like, peace, man, we're going home. And to count those days, like every day counting, we're going home, we're going home and you don't get to, it is so rough. And you know, Let's take a moment. The 155th Regiment, they were writing home letters to be like, yeah, we're going to come home with the other nine-month regiments. And I know I was green with envy watching those guys get on those buses to go to the airport. So I can't imagine what it was like for these guys to be like, oh, I did another three years of this or another two years. Oh, man. Uh, But also telling loved ones that you're coming home on a certain date only to have Uncle Sam slap you down is a time-honored tradition that all military personnel learn about sooner or later. Usually it's through having your spirit broken by the big green weenie, as we called it. And it's nice to know that this is a multi-generational event of suffering that the American government has been able to like keep doing. I just find it, looking back, it's quite funny. But then also having to escort them to the train station. Oh man, that's so brutal. Especially since you're, they were such close friends with these guys. I can only imagine being around the campfire as the soldiers gossip underground, dragged president Lincoln and the war department into their little gossip circles. And those always lead to disappointment. I promise you. So those next letters home, I bet you were stained with tears and bitterness. But what helps with suffering is people being able to suffer with you, and that helps build the unbreakable bond that soldiers have. Another time-honored tradition that I thought was absolutely hilarious was when the nine-month troops were going home, them building that little black powder bomb outside of General Humphrey's tent is hilarious, and I will bet you one greenback that when he was looking back on it later in his life, General Humphreys just loved that, that his men got to do that with him. I bet you he did. Maybe not initially, but as he got older and time went on, I bet he, he thought back on it and he laughed. Also, very interesting note, because it keeps coming up, so I want to show you a version of that. Uh, soldiers passing time talking to soldiers from the other sides while they were on picket duty and swapping things out and trading. Well, I got a video from that. It's from the absolutely terrible film, Gods and Generals, which is nothing more than Confederate lost cause propaganda to a history of America that never actually existed, that they just made up. But it does have some really good Civil War scenes in it. So I'm going to include one from the movie because it's literally mentioned in this exact chapter. So I just want to throw that out there so you can look at it and be like, hmm, that's what it looked like when they were standing next to each other. And moving on from that, the regiment, and of course, 
the armies traversing the old battlefields that Union and Confederate soldiers spent so much time and life to take or hold, and now they're just like crisscrossing those areas with their armies. The battlefields didn't really get cleaned up until after the war. So for years, there was just lots of bones and bodies of soldiers just scattered around these battlefields. And they, they really had to be cleaned up because they were just horrendous. They used to be covered in bones. There's some very historic photographs that are very famous that show this cleanup process that's happening. But I'm not going to post them on my website because they're very graphic. And I do want children who find my podcast to be able to go there. And yes, I know it's the internet and they can find whatever they want, but it's just doing your little part that helps. So I'm going to do my little part. If you want to see it, you can find it in the Library of Congress or just type in like bones of dead Civil War soldiers and you'll see some very famous photographs. And this is going to come up in every podcast that I do because there's a popular phrase, which is the term success. And that is a term that Union soldiers used for successionists and that successionists used for themselves. I am success, successionist. So I know it seems obvious, but I thought I'd just bring it up anyway. A lot of people call the rebels that. I'm also going to put some links for a couple of the men who were talked about in this. Alfred Pleasanton, uh, Stephen Weed, when he becomes the brigade commander, what their roles are, and kind of like the little miniature history. So as people come into the story and leave the story, we'll I'll pull a few of them and be like, hey, you can read this about this guy and about this if you want to learn more. Uh, I think that's, that's pretty much it. This is a really good episode. But I'm going to go ahead and plug my own website here, of course, rebellionstories.com. It's going to have this episode's content all put together along with links and information and other stuff that you can look at. It'll all be in one page. And those pages are only going to get bigger because this book has so much information that is coming down the pipe. I promise you, we're not even close to done with this book. So with that, my friends, please like, subscribe, rate my channel, let me know how I'm doing. Send me an email. Whatever you like. And uh, I will catch you next week when we start with the march to Gettysburg. And other than that, have a great week. Bye bye. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that caged coat of blue. He cried, give me water and just one little crumb. And my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven in my faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you and true when a robe of white is given for
just faded gold of 